pray along with me as I pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that it's in moments like this we get a glimpse of the glory and the majesty and the beauty that is your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray to that end for me and my heart and for the hearts of the people who hear my voice that we would behold the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that it would have its impressing impact on our hearts. That not a soul here would leave here without looking more like your son. For that's why we gather here in his name. And all God's people said, amen. Please have a seat. The last words Jesus, the last word actually Jesus spoke from the cross was, te telestai. We translate that, it is finished, paid in full. And in that moment, he paid the price that our rebellion required to accomplish our redemption. And someday soon, he is going to come back in his second coming, his second advent, and he is going to say the words, it is done. And in that moment, he will have fully accomplished the restoration and renewal of all things for those who are of him. We get to live in the space between the it is finished and it is done. And that's what we're talking about in this series that we started last week. And we're going to be going through, Lord willing, through November, through these two books of Revelation and Daniel. Because they give us a glimpse of reality from God's perspective. We're calling the series Already Finished But Not Yet Done. And there are two great themes in, this, in these two books. One is that God is a kingdom God, and he is establishing his kingdom through Christ in his first and second coming. That's throughout Daniel, and it's throughout the book we'll be in today, Revelation. And the second great theme is that we, as his people, get to inherit that kingdom, and we get to live as kingdom people now. These books are in the Bible not to help us try to figure out exactly every detail of what like the order of events, but to show us the blessing in just following hard after Christ and beholding his beauty, in seeing a glimpse of, of Jesus that we don't see in other parts of Scripture. That's what the word revelation means, and we'll get there in a few minutes. So today we're going to talk about the revelation of the Christ. The revelation of the Christ. Revelation is written to awaken the church from its slumber so we'd be a bride made ready for his return. Revelation is written to awaken our church and his church from its slumber. And we'll see that, not just today, but over actually the next few weeks as we look at his message to the churches. Last week we talked about the material and the message, and I'm going to do something in the next few minutes that I rarely do, and that is kind of by way of review I want to look at what we looked at last week. So if you would open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. It's where we'll be almost the entire time today. It's at the end of your Bible, so it's easy to find. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some people that will put one in it because you want to be able to read along. Because if what I'm saying is not following what this is saying, you should not listen to me. So you want to be able to, for your, on your own, for yourself, check what I'm saying. What we saw last week was, in the, in the first eight verses, is we saw this glimpse of the world unveiled. So I'm just going to pick it up in Revelation 1.1. It says, the revelation of the Christ, 
which, is, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things that are written in it, for the time is near. I just love, and I'm gonna, all about I'm going to re reinforce is that there's that threefold blessing of, I, I talked to several people afterwards um, last week that said that they'd never read through the gospel or that through the book of Revelation. And right here is one reason we should. There is a threefold, there's a blessing for those who read, who hear it read, and who heed and obey the things that it has to say. Let's keep going. Quick review. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So a lot of that we're going to talk about. It's going to come out in the rest of this chapter. So we'll skip reviewing that and jump right to this. Here, here's what I want to emphasize. To him, Jesus, who why he did what he did, loves us, what he did, released us from our sins by his blood and what he's done to us. And he's made us to be a kingdom and priests to God, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Guys, and, and that could be an image of, of like the, of the, like they talked in Acts where he goes away, it says the angel says he's going to return the same way, but it could also be, I don't think he means clouds like, like the white things in the air, I think he means clouds like in Hebrews where he says, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, when he comes back, the clouds he's coming back with are the, are the believers who have died and gone to the present heaven and are going to come back to earth with him to establish the new heaven and the new earth. That's the clouds he's talking about. That's us, if we go to be with him before he comes back. And every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. So there it is. There's, there's the world unveiled. He's giving us a glimpse. He's saying, okay, I, what, the point of this book, John, the point of this book, Cornerstone, is to pull back the veil. That's what the word revelation means. It's just an unveiling or apocalypsis is the Greek word. It's a pulling back of the veil and seeing what is actually happening on the earth right now from God's perspective. That's what Daniel and that's what Revelation is going to show us. So, if it's here to remind us or to show us those things and remind us of what we're to live for and to awaken us from our slumber, let's take a look at the power behind that. We're going to look at, so we saw the world unveiled, now we're going to look at today, specifically, Jesus unveiled in a way that we don't see him in Scripture in other places. This isn't the only place. You see him this way a little bit in Daniel, a little bit in Isaiah. You see him a, you see him a lot at the end of the book this way. But John is going to get a, a new revelation of what it looks like to see Jesus fully unveiled. So the first point he's going to make is, Jesus is going to make to John is, here's your wake-up call, church. Here's your wake-up call. So let's pick it up and look at the first few verses, 9 through 11. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker 
in the tribulation. I love that. First of all, it's like, he's, I love that he just, he automatically identifies with us as family. Like we talk about the family of God, friends that are family. He immediately says, I, John, he's writing to us, to your brother. And then he says, a fellow partaker of the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, which are in Christ Jesus. Guys, those things, tribulation, struggles, the kingdom, and perseverance are all in Christ. And since we're in Christ, they are in us. And then he says, who was, who was on the island of Patmos, is where he'd been exiled. This is written about 95 AD. John is probably about 90 years old at this point. He's been boiled in oil at some point, and he's been exiled on this island, and he gets this vision. But look at why he was exiled. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So should we be surprised when we get persecuted for proclaiming the word of God? No, because the guys that wrote the word of God got persecuted for it. Then he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Guys, that is not some like way of saying I was slain in the spirit. That is simply saying I was in the spirit simply means I was worshiping God. Here's a definition of worship for you that we use here at Cornerstone. It is any time you are putting your mind's attention and your heart's affection on him, praising him for who he is and what he's done. That is a definition of worship that you, that, that is, worship is not music. Worship is not just reading the word. Worship can be yard work. If while you're doing it, you are putting your mind's attention and your heart's affection on him, praising him for who he is and for what he's done. Since I'm in the Lord's, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard from me, I heard behind me the, vo the loud voice with the sound of a trumpet. That trumpet sound, and we're going to see it throughout Revelation, it just means he's coming. It is a proclamation that's, in this case, God, or Jesus, but at other times, other things. Are, that's what the trumpet call is. It's just an announcement. It says, write, verse 11, write in the book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And we're going to spend the next two weeks, Lord willing, looking at those seven churches together and the message he has for those seven churches because they relate very much to us. This, what we want to remember is this is a letter, right? This, this revelation, in, in addition to being apocalyptic literature, being prophecy, it was a letter that was written to the church and specifically, he says, write it to these seven churches, which are seven churches that were planted in what is now modern-day Turkey, what we now would call, like, what, what we think of as, um, I guess, part of the Middle East, right? And the idea, but the idea behind it was, it wasn't write this letter to this, I mean, think about this. He says, write this letter to the seven churches. And we'll come back to this at the end of the message. But it was, it was a letter that was meant to be writ, read circularly. Meaning, this message, so, so the message to the, to the church at Thyatira wasn't just for the church at Thyatira. Why? Because he told them to read it at all the churches. Because seven is just the number of completion to God, and really all he's saying, and I'm flashing forward to the end of the message, is this is my church. All of it is my church. I love how he says here in, um, in this passage that, he, that it, it, it starts to give us a glimpse of how important his church is to him. And that's, Lord willing, where we will be today. This is why the church matters so greatly to God. So here's the question today. We haven't even gotten there yet. Here's the question. In light of this, in light of 
the world unveiled in light of Jesus unveiled, are you afraid of your future? Are you afraid of your future? Because the, there's a lot of stuff when you watch your television that you could be fearful of. And I'll let you in a little secret. That's ramping up, one, because the enemy is ramping up and the darkness is increasing, and two, because fear sells. And that's why I don't watch the news. So he says, here's your wake-up call. The next thing he says is, oh, by the way, now Jesus is actually going to appear to John in this pretty astounding way. Your wake-up call is brought to you by the Ancient of Days. And that's our next point. So let's pick it up in verse 12. Your wake-up call is brought to you by the Ancient of Days. And in verse 12 he says, then I turned. So he gets this vision. He hears this trumpet call. says, then I turned to see the voice which was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with golden, a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze when it had been made to, to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And we're going to look at a few of those things in particular. I don't want to get too lost in all the details, but the phrase there in verse 13 where he says, and I saw one like the Son of Man, that is, that is one of Jesus' favorite ways of describing himself in the Gospels. Right? That is not saying he's a man. The Son of Man was a term that, that Jesus would use in the Gospels because it reckoned back to a phrase in the Old Testament that was used about his first coming. And again, hopefully, well, let's just, I'm, I'm just going to take the time to turn there. Keep, well, you, Revelation's easy to find, so you don't need to keep your finger there. Turn to the left to the book of Daniel. So you're going to go past the New Testament, past all the Gospels. If you get to the big books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, you've gone too far. So just start going back to the left. You're going to go past all the minor prophets. You're going to get to Daniel, and we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7. Because I think it's worth taking the time. Because, guys, when I, when I see the question, like, am I afraid of my future? One of, the way, one of the reasons I'm not afraid of my future is because when I read this book, it especially the Old Testament, it reminds me that God is in complete control. That, that God, who fulfilled all of the promises in the Old Testament in his first coming, is going to fulfill the rest of them in his second coming. Because Daniel was written about 700 years before John gets this revelation from Jesus himself. And, and I want to show you, look at how similar the revelation that, that I just read in Revelation 1, that John gets from Jesus. Look how similar it is to the, to the image that Daniel gets from God 700 years. We Americans are, show, we, we, we are so short-sighted. God always has the long view. But, so do, but, but a lot of cultures have a much longer view than we do too. We are an immediate culture. We want immediate fix. We want an immediate, we want it all right now, right? And 
Our country, like we think of our country, I mean, that would been the, the founding fathers. Guys, our country is 250 years old. That's a baby. And yet we think of that as like ancient. This is 700 years before John lived, or before John wrote his revelation. 2,600 years before now. Now just think about that for a minute. And yet the consistency of the message is amazing to me. So I spent too much time on that, but it's important, I think, for us to get. Because when I, when I ask myself the question, am I afraid of my future? I have, to, I have to ground the answer to that question in something more than just what I'm saying to myself. Right, I'll do, I, I'm a winner. I'm a winner. Uh, what good is that? Because the world is going to turn around right away and say, no, you're a loser. Unless you buy my stuff. So in the, middle of this in the middle of this vision where Daniel is seeing the Antichrist, God shows up. So in the middle of our, think about this, in the, our context, in the middle of a world going to hell, you watch the TV and it's like the evidence of the Antichrist is everywhere. And you go, look at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, just like, just like the revelation we just read. His throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were like a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. A myriad upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. These are the books, the book of life, where all the names are written. And it says, and I kept looking, and because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn, that was the Antichrist was speaking, I kept looking until the beast, again, was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. That's Jesus. And he presented before him and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all the peoples and nations of every man of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Guys, our God is a faithful God. He has been holding fast to his promises since the beginning. And he isn't going to stop now. So let's go back to Revelation, the end of our Bibles here. Go back to Revelation 1, and let's take a look at this glimpse of the Christ that, that he gets here. All of these things, the, the, the robe and the they all are a picture of who Christ is. So for example, the robe and the sash in verse 13 are a picture of Christ's majesty. Right? He was dressed in this robe with the sash. It's a picture of royalty. The white head and the white hair that are in verse 14 of Revelation 1 is a picture of his purity. And they come out of where we just saw, Daniel 7. But they also come out of, I think, about Isaiah 1. Right? Come now, let us reason together, says God. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white like wool. His eyes aflame and his feet of bronze from verses 14 and 15 are out of the passage in Daniel 10 that Jeff read as our invocation, and his voice, like many waters, is out of Ezekiel 43. And they are a picture of his authority. 
So, so John gets this glimpse of his majesty, his purity, his authority. And then it says, and then he has this sharp two-edged sword and his face is glowing. And this is just a picture of Christ's complete unveiling. Okay, so this is a picture of who Jesus is. But I want to take a minute right now and just and sort of talk a little bit about how we're going to approach some of this, some of this symbolism in, in Revelation and Daniel. Because it is important for us. We will take these books literally. Right up until they are obviously not literal. And I get that there's a whole lot of vague there. Because people think differently about how literal or figurative or symbolic these books might be. But nobody, even the most literal literalist, does not take Revelation word for word literally. How do I, like you could be the most hardcore dispensational pre-mill, pre-trib person there is, and you don't take this scene literally. How do I know that? Because literally you don't believe that Jesus has a tongue shaped like a sword. That's not the image, right? It is a symbol of what Christ's word does, right? It is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to rightly divide the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And oh, by the way, at the end of the story, in Revelation 19, we won't turn there, it will lay waste to those who do not know him. So these books, in this particular, this scene, are not necessarily a literal picture of what he looks like. They are a literal picture of who he is. And that's important for us to remember as we move forward. So look at verses 12 and 13 when he says, I'm having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Guys, this is so important for us today to understand this. The, the seven lampstands, if you jump down to verse 20, I hope I'm not losing you. If you jump down to verse 20, for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw which you saw on my right hand, the seven and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the churches. So, so when he says, I see Christ standing in the middle of those, what is that a picture for us today? That Jesus is in the middle of his church. If seven is the number of completion, it's just, this, is, this is the message Christ is preaching to his entire church all over the globe throughout the millennia. He's saying to us, I am the one who stands in the center of it. Here's my question. Is he the one who stands in the center of this church? Our church. Guys, this right here, this scene we're looking at is why we come to church. We come to church not for the light show. Not for the, for the, for the, for the very, um, what's the word, applicable sermon. We come to church to have an experience with and an encounter with Jesus Christ. Because he's here. He is not in the get him in and get him out church. He can't be. He is not in, and guys get this, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but we all know people like this who profess faith in Christ and don't attend anywhere. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm just not into church. But you know what I do is I watch my favorite pastor on YouTube. Jesus is not there. He's not. Not because YouTube is evil, but because he is here when we are here. That's the difference. 
Now, are there situations where health, et cetera? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, everybody's got a story. But if you know people who are able-bodied, and what they're saying is, I just don't like people, so I don't like the church, because here's what I'm telling you. Those people are not saved. And I get that that's a bold statement to make, and I don't care, because this book makes that statement over and over and over again. Do not say you love Jesus and hate his bride. That's the deal. That's why church matters. Guys, people say, wait, well, you're counting my attendance. Like, I'll text somebody, hey, missed you at church today. What, are you counting my attendance? Yes! You know why? Because attendance matters to Christ. Because he died for it. Guys, if the church is what Jesus bled and died for, is it not what we ought to be living for? The church matters passionately to Jesus. And we experience him here in the word, in moving music, in powerful song, in praise, in prayer. We experience him in the fellowship of the one and others we're going to have afterwards. But that's why we gather. Now get this. When he says in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. Guys, the, the image of the right hand of God is a hand of blessing. It's the hand of power. And it's a picture of what Christ is doing in the world in this moment. Get this. Everybody listen. We are what Jesus is doing in the world right now. Own that. If you're his, own that. And if you're his, you will. That's what he's telling us. I stand at the center of my church, and I hold it in my right hand. So today's question, are you afraid of your future? Revelation says, here's your wake-up call brought to you by the Ancient of Days. Oh, by the way, to remind you of who's in charge. To remind you of who's in charge. Let's look at the last few verses of this chapter. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So this is John, who walked with Jesus for three years. I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write down the things that you have seen, and the things that are, and the things that will take place after these things. I'm going to look at verse 19 first and address a couple things in there when it says, write down these things. I love how he's saying, he's saying, John, because you have seen me, because you've beheld my glory, because you've heard my voice, write these things down, read them to each other, obey them. He's like, do it because, because you have gotten a glimpse of my power and my majesty. But, um, but imagine what we're going to see in the coming weeks. It's such an unfair thing for Jesus to ask for, if, if I can be, I hope that's not sacrilegious. It, it's like saying to somebody who's standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to describe in writing the Grand Canyon so that someone who has never been here can really experience it. Because we have digital photography now, and what do we say when we get home from our vacations? The pictures don't do it justice. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of this book. Is he saying, take a picture of what you've seen. 
and it's not going to do it justice. Now, some think that Revelation, that this, this, and you'll see this a lot in commentaries and stuff, that Revelation 19 is an outline of the entire book. He says, so he says, when the things that have been, that's chapter 1, the things that are is the church age, chapters 2 and 3, and then the things that must be are the rest of the book. But here's, I would take some umbrage with that because Revelation is not written, we, we are Western thinkers. Western thinkers, we were trained and taught education. We, we tend to be very linear and very sequential. John was Jewish, and Jewish people think like this. Middle Eastern and Near Eastern people think circularly. And by the way, Jesus was Jewish too. And so what we tend to do is we want to see the sequence and go, okay, so this is the thing, now this, okay, flip the page, now that's all gone, and we're going to keep going. And Revelation has some truth to that. As we move forward, we do move forward in time, but not this way, we move forward this way. And John writes that way. If you read his gospel, his gospel's not written chronologically. If you read his letters, Lord help you try to teach through those things. Because he's constantly repeating himself over and over because he is cycling back to the same thought. And we're going to see that, that same thing in Revelation. So I think it's important for, because, because of how I'm going to end. We get so bent on figuring out what's next. We stop doing what we ought to be doing right now. The question isn't how is it going to happen. The question is what are we doing? Right? The question is, what, not how is it all going to play out? The question is, what are we doing today to see it played out? And if you get so caught up in pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, or mid-trip, post-trip, whatever your thing is, if you get so caught up in that, you're missing the beauty of the letter and the point. We will touch on those things. I'm not going to take a lot of time talking about here's what all the different people believe, but we'll touch on them as we go. I'm not going to ignore them, but that's not going to be our focus. Guys, Here's why, here's why that's such a strong conviction to me. I, and I want you to hear me. Some of you have tuned me out already. I want you to hear me. Our propensity to go, yeah, but I really want a pre-mill, all-mill, there's a big difference, blah, blah, blah. Our propensity to, to demand to know what the answer is is just a byproduct of our sinful self. Right? It's all about us. The desire to go, you know what, it doesn't really matter how it all plays out. Here's what I want. Here's what I know. I am a kingdom person living for the kingdom of God, and the kingdom is coming. Who is that all about? Him. But we're so, because our, even our desire to dig deep into this, frankly, is feeding the idol of self. And we don't want to do that. We want to say, this book is written that we might be kingdom people, not millennial people. And I'm not talking about the millennials. I'm talking about like the millennial reign of Christ. That's not our, we want to talk about the kingdom of God. Right, get this, write this down. Christ's first coming inaugurated the kingdom. It is finished. His second coming consummates, that just means completes the kingdom. That's what we want to look at. That's how we want to view Scripture. His first coming was the, was the coming that, in, that brought... He says, my kingdom is here. My kingdom is now. My kingdom is near you. And my kingdom is coming. Already finished, not yet accomplished. 
We have a lot to cover there, not today, but throughout the next few months, Lord willing. So back to Revelation. Let's look at 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Because do you, do you see, John finds himself flat on his face. This is, this is Jesus' BFF. Right? This is the, the disciple Jesus loved. He was leaning his be- you know, head on his back. Be- and, and he sees Jesus this way and falls flat on his face. Why does Jesus reveal himself this way? Here's to John at this point. You've got to remember, John was writing to a church, think about this in our context, that was, that was in a, an increasingly hostile culture where they were being persecuted, where there was suffering, where there was pain, where there was rejection, and where there was this strong lure to, to try to compromise and just go along with what the world thinks. Sounds a little bit like today. So why does Jesus show up this way? Because here's the thing. When you're going through struggles and trials, you don't need a life coach. You need a king of kings and a lord of lords. We have watered Jesus down to some poor homeless man who had some tidbits of wisdom. Or, you know what, he's just a really good counselor who's got a great ear. No! I mean, yes, but no! Guys, when, when you're hurting, when you're struggling, you may appreciate, rightly so, a friend who is there for you and listens and gives you a hug. But when you're desperate, like you have nothing left, and you're at the end of your rope, only this view of Christ, this biblical, powerful, majestic, judging, all-encompassing view of Christ will be enough for you. Guys, when he says to us, stop being afraid, how can we possibly stop being afraid if we don't believe he has the power to do whatever he wants to do? The reason he says, stop being afraid, is he says, because I'm here. Because the great I am is in your midst. That's why you don't need to be afraid anymore. Not because I have some helpful words for you right now. Not because I want to give you a hug. Yes, he is the good shepherd. Because we're in a street fight. We, the Christian walk is a street fight. And when I'm in a street fight, I want the guy with the steel-toed boots. We just saw glowing boots. I want the guy with the stank eye, the eyes of flame, and he is like, you, you're like, you don't want to meet him on a dark alley. I want him on my side. And he is. And he is. So how are you, are you afraid of your future? Are you afraid of your future? Here, here's what Jesus is saying to us today, and I'm going to begin to wrap it up with this. He's saying, John, look at me. He's saying, Scott, look at me. He's saying, Mark, look at me. He's saying, Doug, look at me. What can't I handle in your life? Look at who I, he's, he's saying to John right now, look at who I am. What, Doug, what can't I handle? 
Doug, don't you know that I know that you are exhausted from the burden that you're carrying? Don't you know that I know that your dad is dying from Alzheimer's disease? Don't you know that I know that your daughters struggle sometimes just to find their place in the world? Don't you know that I know that some of the people you've poured your life into have rebelled and rejected you? Don't you know that I know that? But Doug, every one of the hairs on your head is numbered. Every one of your days are ordained. Look at me. Keep your eyes on me. I'll take care of the rest of it. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I alone have the keys of death and of Hades. He is the first and the last and the living one. He alone holds the keys. Guys, as the music team comes up, and we just take time to reflect and respond to the Jesus you just saw. We do that a few ways here. Right? We give our tithes and offering to the Lord just, just as a way to tangibly recognize it's all yours anyway, Lord. Right? We, lift, we, we lift our voices in song and we praise him as a way of saying, you know what, I am unashamedly, I can't sing a lick, Lord, but I'm unashamedly yours and so I'm going to sing it out. Not because it has nothing to do with me. And we come to his table in communion that we're going to do in a minute. And it's a way to remember what it costs for us to be kingdom people. But I want to ask again, are you afraid of your future? Because if you're his, you don't need to be. We don't need, I, I, I'm not saying the world's not a scary place. I'm saying we are not of the world. In this world, we will have tribulation. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. That's what Revelation is showing us. That he has overcome death and hell. That when you know him as your Lord and Savior, there is nothing, no nothing. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Abby read earlier. Because if we don't need to be afraid of death, what else? What, what else? can the world do to us? If you're his, you have that security. It's a fight. I get it. Renewing your mind with the truth that you are his, that he is yours, that he died for you is a constant fight in a world that is screaming anti-gospel. So turn the world off. And turn him on in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you are not looking for fans. That you demand followers. You did not come here to suggest that we follow you. You came to demand it. And we don't need to wonder what that looks like to follow you. All we have to do is look at you. Live selflessly. Live lovingly. Live compassionately. 
die purposefully. So Lord, I want to pray that we would be a people who would not settle for anything less than your kingdom glory. In Jesus' name, amen.